listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes at Lyric Opera of Chicago. Backstage at Lyric features in-depth interviews with singers, conductors, and creative talents at one of the world's great opera companies. For additional podcast interviews, subscribe to our RSS feed or visit us online at lyricopera.org. Welcome to another edition of Backstage at Lyric. This time we present an audio transcript of the Discovery Series session for Showboat. For those not familiar with the Discovery Series, it is a series of panel discussions with singers, conductors, directors, and other experts and creative talent from Lyric season. There is typically one session per opera, and they usually take place a few days prior to the opening of each production. The Discovery Series is open to the public, and it is a terrific way to get up close and personal with Lyric's artists. For more information, including how to purchase tickets, visit lyricopera.org. All of the Discovery Series sessions are recorded and made available as part of this podcast series. For the Discovery Series session for Showboat, Lyric presented a symposium at Northwestern University. The panelists include several cast members from Lyric's production, including Ashley Brown, who portrays Magnolia, Allison Cambridge, who plays Julie, Nathan Gunn, the production's Gaylord Ravenel, and Morris Robinson, who plays Joe. The singers are joined by Northwestern University's Director of Music Theater, David Bell, and Northwestern Associate Professor of Theater, Performance Studies, African American Studies, and Radio Television Film, Harvey Young. The symposium was held on February 8, 2012, and here now is David Bell to introduce the rest of the panel. I'm very happy to see so many of you here tonight. Uh, I am David Bell. I am the head of music theater at Northwestern uh, University, and I am uh, a proud member of this panel, being able to share this stage with these very illustrious guests. I I am required, first, to... Read a list of our sponsors that we are very grateful for. I couldn't be happier that I get to read this list. I can't tell you how awkward and horrible I'm going to look reading it, but I will do my very best to uh, see. I have to do the glass thing. Um, The Showboat Symposium is sponsored by the Sylvia Neal and Dan Feischel Lyric Opera. Would also like to thank their uh, production sponsors, some of whom are here tonight. Generous sponsors for this new production are the Elizabeth Morse Genius Charitable Trust, the Elizabeth Morse Charitable Trust, Mr. and Mrs. William C. Vance, the Maza Foundation, Jim and Vicki Mills, John and Lois Mills, Roberta L. and Robert J. Washlow, and the National Endowment for the Arts. I want to thank them, and if they're here, thank you for your generous contribution. For students who happen to be here, uh, you are, have a, a special discount ticket program at the Lyric called Next. <coughs> Next offers full-time college students $20 tickets to select Lyric performances 
including some of the showboat performances. You register online at lyricopera.org slash next. And please partake on that if you can see uh, this production of Showboat. Uh, it will be a real gift uh, that you'll carry with you forever. I want to allow the panelists up here to take a second to introduce themselves. It is an extraordinary group of people, and I'm very happy to be in their midst. It's yours. Well, I don't know the protocol here, but I'm Morris Robinson. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm playing the role of Joe, and I'm happy to be here, flattered and honored that you guys have asked me to be here. What else am I supposed to say? <laughs> I'm a bass, I mean. <laughs> And this is Allison. I'm Allison Cambridge. I'm singing the role of Julie in Showboat. Um, originally from Arlington, Virginia, just outside of Washington, D.C. Um, what else? Uh, went to Oberlin. Very strongly considered going to Northwestern. It was, I know, I know. Actually, had the application in for transfer. I was wow. like, oh, small town. It's really small here in Oberlin, but I stuck it out. Um, and uh, what else? I'm loving my time here in Chicago. This is my second time being here this season, and I absolutely adore it. And I'm happy to be here tonight. My name's Nathan Gunn, and I'm not a bass like Morris. I'm a, I'm a baritone, actually. <laughs> <clears throat> Sing mostly Mozart. Um, no, but I have been, uh, I'm from originally South Bend, Indiana. I'm very familiar with Chicago. I've been here in Chicago to sing many times. I love Chicago. I think it's the greatest American city, so there you go. Uh, yes, here, here, right? Um, I've been singing professionally for, I was just adding this up, 18 years now, and yeah, yeah, whoa, right? <laughs> I know I never really thought I would fall into this particular job, but uh, this is what I do, and I love it. And um, I couldn't be happier that uh, although I maybe started in uh, with with art song and moved on to opera at the Met, that we could actually come, you know, come full circle to some of these pieces like Showboat, that which were the um, first pieces of music I heard growing up, and uh, I'm thrilled to be doing this and thrilled to be playing the villain, sort of, <laughs> the anti-hero, uh, and it's, uh, we're having a great time, we really are. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ashley Brown. Um, I'm originally from Gulf Breeze, Florida, which I have to have a shout out because my high school drama teacher is here tonight from Chicago with one of her students auditioning, so she's over there. And um, so she's known me since I was 14 years old, has good stories, I hope. Um, and then I went to college at the Music Conservatory in Cincinnati, CCM, for musical theater. Um, I, this is actually my first opera. I've been uh, doing lots of Broadway stuff. I um, played my Broadway debut. I played Belle and Beauty and the Beast. And then I was given the amazing opportunity to um, or originate the role of Mary Poppins and Mary Poppins on Broadway. But I have to say that it was very nerve-wracking coming here to Chicago and doing my first opera, but everybody here has been so supportive and I've just had the best time, the best time doing the show and I've learned so much from all of my colleagues and so I'm just so excited to be here and to be in Chicago in the winter, it's lovely, <laughs> it's absolutely lovely, but yeah, so we're really excited to be here tonight to talk about the show. Just like to point out how she called this an opera, isn't that interesting? <laughs> <laughs> yep, we'll uh, discuss and that later. Sorry. <laughs> 
And I'm Harvey Young. I teach here on faculty at Northwestern University. I'm in the theater department. I run the theater history area. Uh, and uh, I'm a specialist in American theater, so that's part of why I'm here. I write books and articles on American theater. Uh, and one thing I want to add is that yesterday morning, or actually yesterday afternoon, 12 to 4, 12 to 5, I attended the rehearsal uh, of Showboat. Uh, it's fantastic. So get your tickets now, buy it, you know, stand in line. It's totally worth the investment. Great. Thank you. Uh, I'm so excited to be talking about Showboat. Uh, I know that you probably are aware that Showboat probably is the seminal American musical. Uh, I'm going to actually read a little from Miles Kruger a quote because I think it gives you context for talking about this amazing, amazing piece of theater uh, in a way that I think will allow you to appreciate the response that you're going to get from the panelists. Uh, Miles Kruger says, the history of American musical theater, quite simply, is divided into two eras, everything before Showboat and everything after Showboat. This seminal work revealed that a Broadway musical was free to embrace any kind of theme, however controversial, could deal with serious issues in a suitably mature fashion, could counterpoint light and cheerful scenes with those of human anguish, and yet never need to sacrifice popularity and a memorable, tuneful score. Further, Magnolia is the first protagonist in a Broadway musical to mature from a 17-year-old innocent to a strong, independent adult, as do characters in novels or straight drama. Showbud is also the first musical to present a black and white chorus singing together on a Broadway stage, a most daring venture in a time of Southern lynchings for Ziegfeld, whose reputation had been established with light escapist fare. Showboat set a tone that allowed other revolutionary musicals to follow. It's hard to imagine 1927. There were about 60 musicals that opened in that year, almost uh, 150 plays, some of the greatest musicals of our time. But it's hard to imagine a time when musicals were really uh, constructed to be diversions. The idea that the power uh, the impact, the social storytelling that is required of uh, an O'Neill play could be part of telling a musical theater evening was absolutely unfathomable to the audience that came to the Ziegfeld Theater in December 1929, uh, uh, to 27, to see the very first production of Showboat. So I have a two uh, kind of part question that I want to ask the panelists. Uh, first is, and I'd like you to think about this and I'm going to come back to it later. We always attribute 1943 and the opening night of Oklahoma to be the birth of the American musical, when for me so clearly the, the power and scope of a much more complex story uh, all of the elements of the modern musical are present in Showboat. So why do we attribute uh, an opening night 16-some years later, as the birth of the American musical then with Showboat. What was it that made Showboat clearly an influential, impactful contribution to the American musical, but not the seminal musical that most people call Oklahoma seem to be? Any thoughts from the panel? I think first comes to mind for me is that uh, Showboat was so controversial in its material, uh, addressing issues that people like to turn their heads away from talking about uh, the racial implications, obviously the racial issues, uh, the, 
you know, the, the scene where uh, Julie is called out for being half black. And I think that, you know, our society in general likes to turn their head to things that are controversial, especially addressing race. So maybe it's a matter of just ignoring that that existed and moving to something that was more happy and, 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 and lighter, I guess, you know? I'd also like to add that I think, I think Morris is right, except that I also think that, you know, we have to remember that these musicals were meant to make money. And if you think you're not going to sell tickets because people are going to, like we were protest. talking about, protest or boycott or just not show up, they're reticent to, to put it on. Yeah. And uh, it, may not be, it may not be that they didn't think of it as a, a seminal piece. I think it might have just not been considered because it wasn't done as often. Well, there's one other thing to consider, and that's in 1927, there were no awards for Broadway shows at that point. Yeah. That didn't start until much later, so it didn't get the accolades. I mean, that had something to do with it, probably. But it's obviously, you know, you know, <laughs> you know yeah. it's obviously, yeah, yeah, Harvey would know that. It's obviously something completely different and something that nothing, it had, something that had never been done before, so... It seems pretty clear now. Yeah, I, I, I have two thoughts. Uh, one of the things we're going to do to end our evening tonight is some of my students are going to come up and sing songs that were cut from the show. Uh, songs that maybe have been part of the uh, London production, uh, part of the original production then were never seen on stage, part of the movie versions. Uh, there is a wonderful sense that this, the material that was originally created, the opening night in Washington, D.C., was four and a half hours long that if all of the material were put together, it would be a six-hour musical. Now, I like my musicals, don't get me wrong. Father. But six hours of showboat? Yeah, maybe not. Uh, there's this wonderful sense that you understand that because there is that, there's not that kind of material for, for Oklahoma, that you feel that they were laboring in the fields of creating an operetta, and, and even the authors, the creators, didn't know how revolutionary the material was. When they originally signed the contract, uh, Edna Ferber and Flo Ziegfeld, Flo was very interested in opening the Ziegfeld Theater with it. So they said that they would deliver the entire score of Showboat uh, a month after they signed the contract. Well, musicals were written in about two weeks. Showboat couldn't have been. Because they weren't fast enough, Ziegfeld booked Rio Rita in the theater and f postponed the opening for a year. And what that year did was allow Showboat to become good. Oscar Hammerstein always believed that drama could coexist uh, with music theater. And Oscar Hammerstein single-handedly is the creator of the modern musical. But I think it's very interesting that you have six hours of material that the director, and I, I, I'm sorry that uh, uh, Ms. Ambulik isn't here with us this evening. Uh, Francesca is a world-famous um, uh, creator of opera. But the... the the, the director, actually, in taking a six-hour script and making it a two-and-a-half-hour script, clearly has a lot of power of charting what story the audience is going to see. So the abundance of material shows that this is maybe a, a show like any other opera, operetta being formed. The other thing is nothing followed it. The Depression followed it, so not many musicals were done. But it took 14 years for musicals to start all musicals to start embracing the book form. So Oklahoma, I think, has uh, considered the trailblazer because there was a trail after it. There was no trail after Showboat. It's a one-off. There was nothing like it beforehand, and I, I think it's uh, amazing. The show is epic. It covers 40 years. I, I really want to ask the panelists, but I'm going to start with Ashley. 
how does it feel? Uh, how do you approach the, the time span, the sheer epic nature of the storytelling, uh, most of which you're on stage for? Yeah, it's funny because act one is literally three weeks and then act two is 20 years. And so, you know, I have to be, a, I mean, an extra good storyteller. So in the first, you know, I'm 16 and can be very playful. And interestingly enough, that was one of the hardest things for me to find just because to play, to, you can't just play innocence. You have to play um, so many different qualities to make her interesting and to really make her 16 and the stuff she's unaware of. The, you're not aware of your behavior when you're 16. You're not aware of consequences and love and what all those feelings are. And so to find that, and then in act two, is every time I make an entrance, I have to have aged myself without, you know, with... And to be very specific. And so that's kind of, I took the script, that's what I did first, is I was like, okay, this is where I start, this is where I end up. This is what has to happen in the middle. And it's been such a fun journey for me because I feel like as you get older, you're still the same you, but different things that happen to you, uh, heartbreak, um, loss of a family member, loss in general, um, changes you in very specific ways. And so I kind of looked at my life to see how certain things have affected me and affected me as a person in my daily life or even my personality, um, the good and the bad, and tried to really incorporate those things to to make her specific because I don't have time to do old age makeup. I don't have time to do, and I don't think that's what's important. I think what's important is um, to follow her journey as a person and to see how her heart and soul have been affected by being in love with him, which is just hideous, you know? It's just, I mean, that's what makes it a job is being in love with him, you know? But no, but, you know, but having, falling in love and literally being a girl, 16 on a showboat, who has put her whole life aside for love, for him, him being a lot older and having, you know, some issues of his own and leaves me with a child. I mean, that hasn't happened to me in my life, thank God. But, you know, I mean, to imagine what that would do to somebody and how quickly she had to grow and to grow up because it was no longer about Magnolia. It's now about Magnolia and this child she's got to raise, and and so I've. Her name is Kim. Yeah. What about, <laughs> oh, I, I met myself Magnolia and my daughter Kim. Sorry, and um, you know it no longer becomes about her. So I really tried to um, take everything into consideration to make sure it's very specific that every time I walk on stage, that you realize that she's growing and she's different because of what has happened around her. I have to say, I, I. <laughs> um, I'm only, I am gone for a big chunk of the show. It's like, hello, Julie, and then it's, hello, Julie, um, later on. And uh, I'm in the, in the beginning of the show, I'm with Magnolia, with 16-year-old, fresh, excited uh, Magnolia. And um, when I was preparing this, and this is from a unique, you know, working on a musical theater piece, this is different than opera, working on the dialogue, and I was working with my acting coach in New York, we were working on speech. And she said, you know, Allison, well, you're playing a woman older than yourself, and um, you have, your speaking voice has to be lower. You can't, you can't talk like a soprano like this when you're doing your dialogue. And so interesting, in the opening scenes, when I'm working with Ashley, we're working with Ashley, and she's like, oh, Julie. And that's how her energy would be and how she would speak. And I'd sort of speak like how I'm talking now. And then, so I'd be gone for, you know, a couple hours of rehearsal. We'd be, come back, and we'd do something in act two. 
I'd come out as, you know, drunk Julie, and my pitch is lower. I'm haggard, I'm worn. And then she comes out in the same scene, and I noticed right away her transition. I hadn't seen the scenes that she'd done in between, but I could tell just from her speaking voice that she had aged. And she comes out and she sings a song, what we'd sung in act one, however, whatever it is, 20 years before, 25 years before. And she sings the fish gotta swim. And the guy says, you know, that's a lousy song. And she says in a much deeper knowing voice, well, that's the most beautiful song I know. And if you don't like it, I'm sorry for you. Versus, that's the most beautiful song I know. And you could hear the hurt. You could hear the pain. You could hear the life experience. You could hear it in her tone of voice. And I think that speaks to a great acting technique. Um, And it really shows the journey. I mean, just in how she spoke, really. Um, So I think that all plays into the journey. That's great. That's great. Uh, I, I want to ask Morris. He, he actually sings Old Man River, which is one of the greatest songs ever written, uh, several times during the show. And, and I'd just love to know, does he approach that song differently uh, as, to, as, as the time passes? Do you, do you, do you use, uh, do, you, do you age and do you approach, does your knowledge of the song change? I think that the song itself and the character of Joe itself, you know, he's... He's wise. I mean, he, he kind of gets it. You know, he sees it, all these things evolving around him, and he sees that this, uh, metaphorically speaking, that the river is, 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 is allowing, is watching this time goes, go by. Um, I've seen the song five times, or like four and a half or something. And uh, <clears throat> the first two times is, uh, is the big one, when I'm off to myself at first, and I'm very contemplative, and I'm I'm uh, doing some whittling with some wood and cutting up a shoe and just kind of, yeah, just kind of in my own mind doing it. And as I notice some of the other characters coming around, these are the guys I work with and the guys I, I, that work for me, I start getting more defiant and getting more angry because these inner thoughts now I'm able to express to the guys that are around me. And it's interesting. I'm, I'm kind of going off course here, but, you know, the way this thing evolves is <clears throat> I'm contemplative, I'm internal, and then I'm sparked by the presence of others, and I'm saying, aren't you tired of this? I mean, you know, you and me, we, we sweat and strain. Our bodies are getting broken down. And, you know, I, and then it turns into a, a, a little rally because the guys are there. Uh, and you'll see if you come. But that's the first one. You know, the first one is internal, then defiant, then rallying the troops, and then speaking out. The second time is when I see uh, you coming to the ship uh, to... Let's see, it's the first time they're doing the rehearsal when uh, Ravenel shows up and, and joins, the, joins the cast. And it clicks in my brain that, okay, I see what's going on. I've seen this thing before. I've seen, you know, and, and now I'm contemplative again. And I'm just singing it in the background while these guys are acting through the scene. And uh, so, yes, there's time that elapses, but also the score and the, and the story is written such that I can't really mess it up because it's written that way. I'm supposed to be sotto voce. I'm supposed to be in the background. Then the third time it comes out, or which is the fourth time, uh, Francesca did a beautiful job of staging this because you can't really squish, as my son would say, all this time into, you know, into the amount of time that we have. So you see me coming across stage and I'm singing the same song about time going by, the river going by, and you see all the characters and they've all aged. You know, I have gray hair, but 
Allison's walking by in a drunken stupor. Uh, <laughs> Allison was last night when we were out, right? <laughs> I'm joking, I'm joking. But, uh, and I think that that fourth time singing it is, a lot of time passes. They come by with a sign that tells you what year it is, and then, you know, it's a more withdrawn type of contemplative thing as well. But, I mean, the message doesn't change. You know, Joe kind of gets it. And uh, the very last scene, when I'm doing it the very last time, which is interesting, it goes up a whole step in key, and I'm aged about 40 years at that point, so I don't know how you, you know. Oh my that doesn't make sense. He doesn't care. He doesn't care. He's, <laughs> he's like, that ain't hard enough. I'm going to write it higher. Um, but, uh, and then again, you know, Ravenel makes his appearance back. Uh, Magnolia, you know, my wife and I are going, I know he's not going to take her back. Or she's not going to take him back. And then I see it all evolving again. I have to make the statement one more time, but Old Man River just keeps rolling along. I mean, all these things are happening. All So... Uh, Mentally, you change the approach, but the music kind of takes care of itself with the scenes and the setting. I hope that helps you guys understand. Right. No, I think that's, I think that's great. Um, Allison, I want to ask you a question. Uh, the role of Julie was created for Helen Morgan, um, much before everyone's time in this room, I'm sure. H- Helen Morgan made her Broadway debut creating this role. She was a saloon singer. And she was famed for sitting on top of a piano, singing a song in a very, very light voice, uh, eventually light, brandy-affected voice. Um, and I, I am uh, amazed at what it would take to make that original conceit, uh, someone singing a saloon song on top of a piano, make a transition from that venue into one of grand opera. And I would love you to help share how the intimacy of a song like Bill uh, plays and, and what, what resources do you find in projecting to uh, such a large house? Um, I've taken, I don't know, quite a journey with this piece, honestly. Um, I performed it, you know, I don't know, for a couple of years just with piano outside of the context of this show. And then within the show, when I got here, um, I wasn't sure exactly how it was going to go with the orchestra, how much freedom I would have, how quiet I could sing, how much time I could take, what breaths, these sort of technical things that you think about when you approach an opera score. Um, and then within the first rehearsal, then the maestro pulled me aside and said, you know, you can do whatever you want. I said, really? I said... He told you that? Yes, I said, but within... <laughs> I said, but within orchestra? He goes, honey, we'll follow you. And I was like... And I, I, I was just shocked and amazed. And then we had literally like a 15-minute coaching. And he said, you know, you can try slurring here. He's like, do you know how to backbeat and backphrase? And do I? I said, of course. And he said, do it. I said, okay. So we went through it with the piano... And you'll see when you come see the show, I begin the opening and I sing the first half of the first verse. It's just myself and Craig Terry, fabulous pianist, um, who has a part in the show. And it's just us on stage. And we sing it as in, in the bar. And then eventually John brings in the orchestra. On um, He's just my... And then along came Bill and... It's true, and John really has allowed me to do whatever I want. And 
Francesca um, encouraged me to sort of go there and yes um, to sort of go there and push myself it is an intensely intimate personal deep song and you know you can go any number of directions and she just sort of gave me carte blanche to go there whatever that means to Allison and I'll leave it at that I can't wait I really can't wait to see it I remember the day in rehearsal when she finally went there remember that because I went right up to her and I was almost crying on cry for anything and it was just absolutely amazing and beautiful so yeah Thanks, Mo. And, and, and David, if I, could, if I can add something here. Um, you know, what's, what's really fascinating and interesting about uh, Showboat is that you know, for a, a, a musical that premiered in 27, right, 1927, uh, it's a musical that actually looks back in time, right, uh, like sort of quite literally in terms of the plot of the, of the musical. Uh, and there's a way in which like, you know, now we can sort of sit around in 2012 and think, oh, this is a nice, nice cute little period piece. But in 1927, it was actually looking back upon the history of, of vaudeville creation and musical creation. And you see those bits of, you, you see the melodrama you know, sort of on stage and the play within the musical, right? You see that happening. Uh, uh, Old Man River, uh, in addition to um, uh, sort of Robeson's initial voice, you know, uh, back in 2028, 20, 2728, uh, you also had this culture of audiences stopping performances to hear a song again and again. Uh, and then the repetition of Old Man River uh, comes in you know, again and again to please the audience. And even when Robeson played, um, uh, uh, you know, sort of the role of Joe, uh, in the initial performances, audiences would stop and, come and, 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 and demand that he sing the song again, right? Uh, and you think of, the, you know, think of vaudeville and the saloon singer, right? You know, so, so that tradition, uh, you know, repeats and comes across in the, into this musical. And the fact that those forms get translated into a musical and then get translated into an opera, it's amazing. Yeah. I, it's it's this wonderful mixture of Broadway, Tin Pan Alley, opera, uh, and uh, I'm thrilled that it is finding a home in, in the the opera house where I think it probably belongs. Um, there are two big themes in um, in the show: that of the river, the river kind of represented representing timelessness, continuity, but it's also a river that represents a divide. Those people who act in shows on the river, those people who uh, travel down the river, are not the same people who make the river work. Joe's character, Queenie's character, are the people who actually labor. Uh, there are lyrics that actually celebrate the differences on what that divide is, which actually is a segue. I'm going to have Harvey kind of talk about African Americans on the Broadway stage prior to 1927. Uh, to show you how remarkable this achievement is. Totally, yes. Uh, it's, it's, got, it's got louder. <laughs> you know, uh, so what you have is you have actually, uh, the Broadway, Broadway as Broadway is, is, is hard to pin down, right? You know, because her Broadway actually sort of moves and becomes Broadway uh, in the late 19th century, right? You know, and there's her performances that have occurred all over the place, but you know, is it Broadway or is it, or is it not quite Broadway just yet? Uh, but what we agree upon you know, is that 
uh, you had traveling um, and, and touring African American theater companies. You know that that toured across. You know, there were syndicates and circuits. Uh, you know that exist in late 19th century, early 20th century, and they performed all over the place. You know, so you actually had a number of vaude- of, of Broadway vaudeville shows. Um, you know uh, that were musicals. Think of Bob Cole's work, uh, Burt Williams' uh, work. Uh, you know, so you had you had celebrated figures who were song and dance figures. You know, but what they did was they often had to perform uh, in exaggerated sort of stereotypical characters uh, and then slowly through their work revise and create a more authentic, more accurate representation of African-American existence and experience. You know, so it, between, I would say, 1900 and 1910, or really 1895 and 1915, you begin to get a, a, a slow sort of gradual shift and change in the types of characters uh, that um, black actors uh, played uh, on the vaudeville circuit and then later on Broadway, right? Um, you know, certainly you have Charles Gilpin, you know, sort of coming along, uh, and Charles Gilpin, uh, he plays Emperor Jones in 1920... Early 22, 21, something like that, early 20s. Uh, and he becomes uh, your first uh, African-American um, uh, actor in a serious drama, you know, on Broadway. And, 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 the, and the reason why I say a serious drama is because there's earlier sort of musicals and vaudeville performances that exist. Uh, you know, but even as Charles Gilpin is performing, you know, he is sort of sparring back and forth with Eugene O'Neill about the use of the N-word, uh, you know, in, uh, in Emperor Jones. And he refuses after a while to actually say it or, or to say it as many times as O'Neill wants him to say it. Um, and there's sort of famous falling outs, and O'Neill's like, I don't like this guy, Charles Gilpin, get rid of him, <laughs> right, you know? Um, you know? But even as Charles Gilpin's performing this role, you know, there's actually white actors on stage in blackface playing the other black characters, right? So in 1922, you have the celebrated moment, but you can see how the legacy of, of race uh, and these racial characters continue. Uh, certainly with Showboat, right? When Showboat premieres in 27, um, you have... Uh, uh, I, I, uh, is it Tess? Is it Tess? Uh, Queenie. Queenie was. Yeah, so who, who's the actress who, who played Queenie in 27? Yeah, Tess Gilliard? Tess Gilliard? Uh, you know, so you had, you know, so you had Paul Robeson uh, playing Joe, you know, uh, alongside uh, Tess Gilliard, I think it was Tess Gilliard, uh, who's a woman, a, a white woman in blackface playing Queenie. Um, you know, and that was the performance, that was the dynamic that you had occurring in 1927. So you can see how there's a, a very slow gradual, you know, uh, uh, change, you know, in the representations of African-American existence on the stage, you know, but what Showboat does in 1927 and then 1928 when it hits Broadway uh, is that it has more basically black bodies on stage uh, and people realize through Paul Robeson's appearance, through the success of Old Man River, uh, you know, that you know, Broadway has now opened up towards serious um, and more authentic representations of African Americans, even as though you had Tess playing Queenie in blackface. Uh, you know, so that becomes this turning point. And you can really see and sense in 27, 28, more work comes along. There's more black artists who emerge uh, inspired by the work that's happening in Broadway. Yeah. Uh, the opening lyric of Showboat is, if you chart it, over the last decades is a chart of political correctness as the opening lyric changes from the N-word to the other N-word to colored folks to here we all work on the Mississippi. Uh, And in the change of growing sensitivity to what is clearly a national crisis, this show has been revived on Broadway every decade since 1927. I would love to uh, ask, uh, I'll start with Morris, how do you as an African-American actor 
Uh, does it change the way you approach the role? Are there attitudes that are inherent in the role that make it uh, difficult for you to act? Or, uh, or are there advantages to how it's constructed? Without addressing that word in particular first, I'll, I'll go back, go to your question about playing this character and is it hard for me, Morris Robinson, to make this character work? I, I've talked about this before and maybe some of you guys heard it. Um, you know, I've been blessed with the opportunity to play lots of kings, gods, high priests, <laughs> fathers. You know, the bass role in the operatic re repertoire, you play positions of authority. And I've been blessed with the luxury of people mostly singing my name for hours before I come on stage. So when I walk out, uh, <laughs> there's not a whole lot I have to do. I show up, they're all praising me, I sing a few words and I leave and I'm, you know. <clears throat> and it sounds funny, but that's really what it is. Um, it's true, I'm not a soprano. But, <clears throat> but <clears throat> having come from that and being used to doing that all the time, one of my biggest concerns was try, trying to access how to become this subservient character. And it was interesting, I did the, uh, the, the dress rehearsal yesterday and Gordon Hawkins, who is uh, currently playing Amanazar and Aida and has played this role and has a little bit more experience than I do in this business, said, you're, you're so present, and not me, Morris, but yes, Morris, and Joe, the character is so present because he's, he's wise. You have to also remember that in 1887, 1890, as powerful a person as he was, and as well-respected as he was on that ship, he still had a subservient mindset. And I have to always be cognizant that I can't walk into a scene and own it. I have to walk into the scene and kind of access information, remember my place, remember my place as it relates even to you two, uh, and, and, and then go from there. So it's been difficult, and I've gotten it, I think. But I think it's been the biggest challenge for me is learning how to play that subservient role because, uh, you know, it's, it's totally out of character. Um, as far as the dialogue goes, you know, I did my research on this too, and, and I had some issues with it, and it took me a long time to even decide whether I was ready to go here, you know, to play this role. Uh, because of my ignorance to the, of the musical, I didn't know much about it. I didn't do much about it. Uh, I didn't do anything with it before. I seen the aria in concert, but after discovering the character, I realized that Joe has a lot of pride. You don't have to dumb yourself down to play this you may have to change the way you speak to, to, to fit within the parameters of that contemporaneous situation, but it doesn't require that you, you know, sell yourself out, so to speak. Uh, the, dialogue, the, the issues of, of linguistics, if you will, I think were handled beautifully by Paul Robeson, who didn't play the first, uh, he, he was not in the premiere, he was in the second revival of it. Uh, and at that time, he decided, I'm not gonna do this, I'm not gonna do this, I'm gonna change to this, you know, and, and it evolved. I think today, if we were to decide, or if Francesca was to decide to go back to the original lyrics, I think this society is so exposed to so many things with HBO and MTV and, and all that stuff that it probably would not be as offensive. I don't know if it's necessary at this point to, to prove the point because we're, you know, the, the issues are very clear without having to use that N-word, which is so controversial. But uh, I, I don't have a problem with the way it is written as, as we're doing it, you know? And it's only used once. It's used once and in I this think, show. I think dramatically in it's important. In, yeah. In, it's funny how all of a sudden I become the authority on these types of things in rehearsals. Oh, I, I got all yeah. these white guys walking up to me and say, how do you say this word? I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
I went to college. I don't. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Morris, I kind of feel like. First of all, I just want to say that it's a testament to Morris's, you know, uh, commitment to his acting that he actually thinks about how he's supposed to behave towards the other people on stage in a subservient role. Because as you know, I've all seen in the world of opera, if it's called The Marriage of Figaro, Figaro thinks he's the count, even though the count is in charge. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So he's he's doing that. But you know, wh- whether it matters what the white guy thinks or not, I kind of feel like. And I am sure that the creators of this piece must have read their, you know, Herman Melville. The story, if you're going to, what I think is you use a language that doesn't cover up the universality of the story because everybody, there's always going to be someone out there who's the oppressed person. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a universal story. It's our story as Americans, but you don't, you know, and I think the, as long as we, you know what I'm talking I about? Feel like I feel like people are, are uncomfortable with it if the issues still exist. Yep. That's why. Do you know what I mean? I feel like that's why people would be uncomfortable. And it's in a, it's a very recent history. Um, like wasn't but, there recently a, a Romeo and Juliet that was done with like a, 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 a Jewish Juliet and a Palestinian Romeo oh, or something yeah, like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or was it's it all over the blogs and yeah. Wasn't it? Yeah. 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 I was, wasn't and sure if that was Oklahoma. Walked. But it could have been Oklahoma, you know, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I feel like if that's our history and if that's the truth, I'm, why not play that? I, 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 I don't know. And it's so funny. I mean, there's this show and I've done Porgy and Bess and then there's always the beginning. It's like, are we okay with saying these words? <laughs> and then it's like, look at the black people in the cast. Yeah. Is it okay? And it's like, you know, this is the show. It was written. The people who wrote the show, wrote the lyrics, did their research, were in the time period, know what was happening, and we were portraying what was happening in this time. So, therefore, and it's the same as in an opera, and like you said, in a, yeah. portraying another story. Um, so, it, it is sort of odd that, you know, we, I mean, there are these, first of all, I think it might be just our generation, right. because right. we're a little bit more, I mean, mm-hmm. we've, we haven't experienced these things. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and also, I, I, I sometimes think, wow, you know, Cozy is so much worse, or yeah. or right. there or, are there... or the stuff they say about women and you know yeah. and Zauberflute. I'm like, mm. you know, if they could only right. if they only understood exactly. what we were saying, Same. they would not be happy. Exactly. That would definitely change. Exactly, it's an you Italian. Know? You get away with a yeah. lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. no I one's mean, ever asked me which was my Chicago uh, first opera role I did here was Osmin in uh, Mozart's Subduction from Seraglio. No one's ever asked me why would you play that role. But I've had lots of black friends ask me, why would you do this? I mean, Ozmin's black, he's a moor, he talks about hanging people, beheading them, skinning them alive, burning them at stake, and no one's ever questioned me about that. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's in German, you know? <laughs> <laughs> the first time I did Cozy, there's this one line where, you know, my, my girlfriend who thought, you know, we're t- tricking, the, you know the whole story, all the guys, right? Cozy, they switch partners. And uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> you know, girlfriends without them knowing, and, yeah. and, and his girlfriend betrays him, and it was I was just fresh out of co- college, and I'm calling her all these names, and, it's betray- right. and I scream out that she's a Kanya, which is a female dog, right? And I'm like, is that okay? I mean, can I sing? <laughs> I, yeah. Is that, you know, is that okay to do on stage? Right. <laughs> well, aside from the theme of, of the river, the the other major theme is the theme of fantasy versus reality, make believe. Um, Julie passes for uh, being white. Uh, You have a whole world populated by people who are both on stage and backstage. And you have this wonderful lead character, um, uh, um, Gaylord and Magnolia, lead characters, who actually are introduced by playing out a fantasy of 
what is their relationship? Uh, let's make believe that it is love. And strangely, it plays out kind of brilliantly through the rest of the show that maybe they are just make-believing it's love throughout. It's, it's brilliantly written, brilliantly created. Uh, one of the, the greatest make-believe components is a bit of a con artist. Uh, in one of the first great anti-heroes ever written for a musical in Gaylord Ravenel, He's an extraordinary uh, character and complex. And to have um, a character that I think generates so much understanding and sympathy, I, we understand this guy, to, to actually abandon a wife and a child um, is an extraordinary journey for an audience to take today, let alone in 1927. So I want to ask Nathan, A, how do you negotiate the, the, the anti-hero qualities uh, of Gaylord Ravenel? And, and let's start with that. Um, first of all, uh, just to add a little something to only let, you know, make believe I loved you, I, it occurred to me during this rehearsal period that that was the beginning of something that is truly, as far as I can tell, an, an all-American uh, form of writing. Like, if I loved you, only make believe I loved you. It's, we, there are no other genres where you have this, where you're expressing your love in the conditional, is it conditional? Yeah, in the conditional tense. And it's really fascinating. Anyway, that just came up to me. You know, I thought of that this, uh, this rehearsal period. Um, there are other characters that I've played that I, uh, are, are, are somewhat anti-heroes. The, uh, the one that comes to mind that is even more vicious is Tarquinius in The Rape of Lucretia, where he has to, in order to prove the thing that he loves is pure and chaste, has to destroy it, right? And, uh, and that I, it took me a while to wrap my head around this. With, with Gaylord Ravenel, the biggest difficulty I have found has been the way the show ends. Everybody wants reconciliation. Magnolia doesn't, at least the, she has the, I mean, you, you can if you want to, but she doesn't want to. <laughs> I mean, it's like daggers, you know, she's like, at the end. And, uh, and what I thought was, you know, a, a man, his, the last time he sees his wife, who she had no idea he was leaving, he, she'd been stuck with him the entire time, he sends her a note and some money, says he thinks it's the be for the best if I let you take care of our child and you fend for yourself. At a time where a woman doesn't have very many options, you know, and being an actress is not particularly looked upon in a, in a, a, a positive light. Yeah. Uh, and then he goes to see his daughter, who's seven years old at a school, and says he's going away for a little while, but he'll be back. And then at the end, getting from there to the end, where he actually arrives and expects this daughter, you know, in our modern, you know, this happens, to, to embrace him as a father, when she probably went through, he left because of me, what did I do to make him go, I hate his guts, I don't remember him anymore, you know, things like that is, is kind of difficult. The way I have done it, and this is, you know, everybody has their methods. What I, I thought of is, okay, what would motivate him? What is a modern way of thinking of the motivation for him to try to see them again and reconcile? And all I could think of was like AA or Gamblers Anonymous, you know? The man is addicted to gambling, and he chooses, in a way, he chooses not to pollute them anymore with his presence. He somehow thinks that's the best thing. Like people who commit suicide think, that's the best option I have right now. They're trying to do the best thing for themselves, although it's obviously not. 
the best thing. And maybe he returns because, you know, he's gone to everybody else he's hurt so far, and he has to return to them. And whether they accept him or not is not in his power, but at least he needs to offer it up as a possibility. And that's my modern take on it. And uh, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, we had a lot of discussions about um, the very end when Kim and him go to hug and and what, how I wanted to handle it, and, um, or we wanted to handle it. And I think, because I'm not a parent, um, you know, to see your child, but what I would think is, of course, you want your child to know her father, but all this has happened, and I feel, my story, that I, I was honest with her when she was old enough to take it. I didn't say he was off on vacation. I think, eventually, I told Kim why you left, and because um, I didn't think she would ever grow up or let her child not know what the truth was. But at the same time, I feel like when they see each other, I go into protection mode of this situation. I don't want her to hug him, but at the same time, it's her father, and if that's what she wants to do, she should do it. And so there's that struggle. As I said before, that moment is not about me. It's not what I want. It's what she wants and what they want. And so to kind of go into that protection mode of, okay, she wants to hug it, so I'm going to hug him, so I'm going to support that. Hug it. <laughs> um, but another thing... See what I have to deal with? Is it a re- I mean, you understand why I'd leave. The abuse. It. It. Um, no, but I also think, you know, the theme of the theater is, and the only make-believe is, I grew up on a showboat, and all I knew was theater and I wanted Magnolia wants to be on the stage but her mother will not let her and that's all I ever wanted so when I finally get my chance to be in the theater you know when we first meet we sing only make believe and I get lost in the whole story of how he likes to pretend and I like to pretend and that's how we initially fall in love and in the end being on the stage is initially what saves Magnolia and I think that is I definitely can relate to that because, you know, Gay did not, Gaylord Ravenel did not want me to perform anymore. So once we got married, I put all of my dreams and aspirations aside to be married to him because I loved him and wanted to just be with him. It didn't matter what came with him, the good and the bad and the ugly. I stayed with him and gave up everything that I've ever wanted. And so when he leaves me, I have to put myself out on the line again. I audition and I get a job at the Trocadero. And then in the end, I'm a big Broadway star. And so I think it's interesting, that arc of how theater is what made her fall in love with him. And it's also what saves her as a single mother um, in the end. We did also make uh, a slight change because we just thought it was too creepy at the end. And, you know, and, and it's interesting because Showboat, this, this show, you, they made a lot of changes over the years depending on what was popular or not. And there was a point at which um, Ashley came out, Magnolia came, comes out at the very end of the reconciliation. And that's when the theme music, only make believe I love you, only make believe you love me. And they wanted me to sing that whole thing to her. And I thought, that's gross. And she I would, would not stick you know, around for it. She would slap me and leave, mm-hmm. you know. So, so we had to... <laughs> But, you know, maybe there was a time when they wouldn't. They'd think, wow, that's romantic, and they're going to, you know. Um, but we changed that so that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm sort of reveling in some sort of memory of what was, and then we see each other, and it, it just, yeah, it just seems kind of icky. Another example of the many changes that have been made throughout history to adjust yeah. to current society and how they would view things. Yeah, obviously, that course. may have been acceptable then, but, mm-hmm. you know, not with Jerry Springer out there nowadays. Obviously, the relationship between fantasy and reality is an issue. 
there's this beautiful scene in the boarding house in the opening of the second act where we actually see this girl who has embraced fantasy and make-believe actually come to grips with reality. And that tidal shift in what this character wants, what this character believes in, and her ability to go back to the stage, not as a stage-struck teenager, but as someone who is desperate for a job, I, I think creates suddenly the make-believe there's a need for her to participate in make-believe that didn't exist before. It, to me, is one of the most moving scenes to this day ever written for an American musical, and, and I would love to uh, know how it feels playing it. To play that particular scene. Yeah, that, I think and, and that transition into reality, realization that she needs to make a living. Yeah, I mean, it's it's was such a crazy scene to make happen because, I mean, as I said, act two, you know, it goes boom, boom, boom. But I have to say, to see an actress crumble is, I think, one of the most amazing, I mean, not to the actress that's crumbling, but, you know, to actually watch somebody who's on a pedestal, who you think is life is perfect, and you think has it all, to really crumble and realize what's actually happening is is quite, um, I can't find the word, it's, it, I mean, it's just touching, and I think for me to make that real, and I mean, from being in the business for a while now, I mean, you know, I have those days where, you know, everything's going great, but I mean, this business, you just never know what's going to happen. You can be, you know, on Broadway in front of the lights, and the next thing, you know, you're auditioning and getting turned down, turned down, turned down. I mean, it happens. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Um, and so I think, you know, that finding that desperation, and and I think, but at the end, in the end, that moment is what drives her to go back again. And I think, as actors, I think we've all had that moment of that you kind of need that crumble to be hungry again. You kind of need that, that moment of no, no, no for you to be like, you will give me a yes before the end of the day. You know what I mean? It makes you have that drive again because I think if you're, your whole life you're told yes, you lose perspective. And as hard as it is to hear no and to hear that you have nothing and everyone's left you, it's hard. But at the same time, I think that's what gives Magnolia her drive. Once she gets over the self-pity and, oh my gosh, what am I going to do? She picks herself up and she picks her child up and she's like, this is what we're gonna do. I'm not taking control of my life. And so to see her you know, go through that transition. And I have to say, having this much to do, to having this big of an arc in a show I've never had before, you know, I mean, playing Mary Poppins, I had to, it was the hardest thing for me because I couldn't be affected by anything. And that was really hard, you know, because all this is happening and I have to be, I can't feel. And that was really difficult because, you know, in acting class, you're taught to feel and be aware of everything. But in Mary Poppins, Mary Poppins is who she is in the beginning and who she is at the end. You see the family change because of her. And so it's so nice to be in this show because I'm affected by so much and so many people and everything that happens. And it's my job to kind of take everybody through that journey of somebody who's very vulnerable, but yet has so much pride and so much drive and that's why I think she's so interesting, and that's what I really try to bring to her. What's really brilliant about the libretto, too, that libretto, what do you call it, the um, yeah. book, script, uh, at, that, at that point, is, is when <laughs> she brings, when the, the I think this is great what, what Ashley does, maybe you don't even mean to do it, but when, when the letter is brought in, and she looks at it and sees it, and, she, and it gets back, it just is a, it's a, a little bit of a, a um, not foreshadowing, a post-shadowing or whatever, of 
pre-shadowing, uh, what do we call it, um, hearkening back to her times on the, uh, on, the, on the boat where acting was her thing. She says, I don't know if I can believe, I won't, what'd you say? I don't be- know if I can believe this unless somebody reads it out loud yeah, to me. Uh, yeah, I read the letter and I say, I hand it to Ellie and I said, I might believe it if I hear somebody else say it. And it's interesting because Ellie was there at the beginning with her and you see what kind of actress Ellie is and then she reads it and it's like, She's a real human being reading something that is real life. And it yeah. takes that. It, and then that's like the, that's the catalyst for you moving into this different part of your life. Mm-hmm. I find it very no. cool. Why, thanks. Real quick, since you're on that scene where the letter comes in, I just noticed in the audience is one of our colleagues, Renee, who uh, actually... Renee? Oh, there she's she back is. there. Show us the letter, Renee. So. <laughs> <laughs> she delivers the letter. <laughs> And you're real good at it, too. Renee, are you the woman at the pier at the end? No. Oh. Oh, it is. It is. I've always been astounded by your versatility. If you don't know Renee, she's a legend. Uh, also, uh, Harvey and I have a colleague who teaches here at Northwestern with us, Cindy Gold, who plays Magnolia's mother, Parthi Ann. And uh, uh, one of my best friends, uh, Robbie Lehman, who has done a show I wrote, Hot Mikado, all over the world, is playing her father. And he has been texting me fairly regularly, saying, opera's strange. <laughs> Duh. Okay, actually he says his opera is whack, but don't tell him I said that's what he really said. Duh. And uh, I, I am very intrigued about the differences between opera and music theater. This is uh, Robbie's first experience in opera, and I've had a, a running dialogue with him about celebrating the differences between the two forms. Uh, Ashley, of course, you do both. Uh, but do you all do you do music theater pieces as well? It's my first time. Uh, that's amazing. This is my first professional um, musical theater experience. I mean, I did musical theater and straight theater um, acting in college and in high school. But for the, for the audience, how does it vary? Uh, well, it's funny. We were talking the other day. He goes, "It's so interesting, Ashley, that you refer to this as an opera and I refer to this as musical theater because I think it just depends on your perspective." But because uh, I think. I mean, of course, it's with an opera company, so I guess... But it's, it's funny, because everybody's like, how do you approach it? And I was like, I just approach it as I'm telling a story. Mm-hmm. And I don't feel like I approach it any different than I've done musical theater, because um, it's all about how to tell the best story. But, you know, people are like, do you change your voice? Do you do this? And I say, I just do what's appropriate. You know, of course, I wouldn't, you know, belt only make believe, because it's not appropriate, you know, for yeah. the character and... Yeah. Yeah, I'll do it for you later. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, but I think, you know, it just depends, and you wouldn't sing all that jazz in your head voice. You know, yeah. you just, it's just, you kind of just approach the material on what is appropriate. And, and of course, you know, 
and appropriate for the character. So I don't feel like I necessarily, I mean, I was classically trained my whole life. So I've grew up singing opera. I just, it's just funny how life takes you in different paths. I think musical theater is as broad of a word as opera yeah. is. You know, I think when you, people have certain, it's also loaded. You know, you have, when you say opera, people don't know anything about opera. They go, boo, you know, and they think <laughs> horns and stuff. <laughs> and, you know, and I'm thinking, but, but then you have everything from, you know, uh, the coronation of Popea to you know, the Love and Other Demons by Peter Utfush, and it's, you know, all opera, bel canto, and I mean, it's so varied, just like musical theater. And what I have found is that, because I've done both, is that um, generally speaking, well, first of all, the way we were getting away from the music, the way we rehearse and the amount of performances is totally different. And the way the, and the, and the, and the, and just, and the orchestration. The orchestration, I would say from, even, you know, once those rock musicals started happening, the singing started changing, and, and then you have even Stephen Sondheim, where he didn't score for unmiked voices. Right. Mm-hmm. Pre that, you know, the, the sort of things we're doing, we're scored for non-microphones, and it makes a big <laughs> difference in, a, in how it's supposed to sound. So, and, how, and what the singer, is expected of the singers. The first musical I did was a semi-staged version of Carousel with the New York Phil. And I was the only person who had ever sung with the New York Phil, right? So I'm with Gabriel Byrne and Marin Maisie and all those types of people. And, and, uh, and, and Marin, and this, you know, this sounds like I'm, you know, clapping myself, but what, what Marin said to me in a, in a rehearsal, she said, okay, you're going to sing If Ever I Would Leave You, which is not a very hard song to sing, but people love it, and then I'm going to have to sit here on this bench for five minutes while people clap, and I'm like, yeah, nice, Marin. And after the first night, that's what happened, and I was shocked by it, because in my world, I think, well, you're, it, it should be more difficult, right? <laughs> but they just hadn't heard a baritone sing it in a long time. They kind of had heard the tenors that can't quite sing high who sing baritone rep to it. And, and I thought, well, that's interesting because maybe, you know, maybe this isn't so different from what we do. And it made me think about it a little bit more. I think of Showboat now as American operetta. The same thing with Carousel. The same thing with Oklahoma and, and Camelot. They're just... You know, you would actually, Harvey, know more about this. Uh, a student, I'm also a professor at the University of Illinois. Sorry, Northwestern. <laughs> but I love Northwestern. A lot of great people here. Um, but he's doing, uh, he has his uh, prelims coming up, and I asked him to talk a little bit about uh, American music on the th- stage. And he brought up the Astor Place uh, opera riots that had to do with, which caused a huge separation between those who wanted to hold on to the European tradition and those who wanted to embrace the American tradition. And they then built this semi or somewhat non-democratic Metropolitan Opera House or whatever. And then Broadway came in the other direction. And we've had this divide ever since then. Right, yeah. And, and, and basically, you know, the, the riot was caused by... Uh, um, it was a desire to have an American form, you know, to theater. Uh, and, you know, so the riot was caused by... It was actually, uh, in this case, it was Shakespeare. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Shakespeare production... Uh, and there was a celebrated uh, English, English actor, actor right. Charles McCready. Yeah. Uh, and, and then it was the uh, Edwin Forrest, who was the uh, celebrated uh, you know, American actor. Uh, and, and they were performing the, the, the it's like in, in two neighboring theaters, they're performing the, uh, uh, the same piece. I forget, I forget what it was. Uh, and you know, Charles yeah, I think it's the one you're not supposed to say in the, uh, Scottish, the play. Scottish play. Scottish play. Uh, like, and basically, uh, you know, Edwin Forrest was known as being this ruggedly, you know, handsome, 
you know, like uh, fully embodied, like he sort of, he, 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 was, he championed this new form of realism on stage. Uh, and Charles McCready did more of a restrained, more gestural approach. Uh, and what happened was, um, uh, Charles McCready said negative things about Edwin Forrest. So all of Edwin Forrest's friends went to see Charles McCready perform, and they hissed and booed. Um, and then a riot occurred. <laughs> so, like a riot where 25 people were killed and 100 and some, you know, were wounded. I mean, it was yeah. huge, right? Yeah. 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 <laughs> but, but the lesson of this was the sense of a class divide. You know, it, it was both a class divide between an assumption of what is fair for the, you know, uh, you know for the elite uh, and, then, and a more democratic form. Right? And there's also a divide between uh, a burgeoning American form of production and theater uh, and also a sense of you know, what value do we place on received traditions coming in and being put on the stage. Yeah, it is. One of the most exciting things about Showboat is one I referred to earlier in the evening, which is it has a mass of material that has accumulated over the years <laughs> because every major production is slightly different than the one before it, and I, I'm very happy to uh, hear that the uh, tradition is continuing, which I will like, explain in a minute. But I, I have some of my students. I want to share some of the materials that are no longer in the material in the show. So come on up, kids. Uh, the first song uh, it was actually introduced. No one has really known how to end the show, partly because the show ends in 1927. When the show opened, that was current day. Now, of course, 1927 is a period piece. So uh, the scene where Kim was introduced ended up with someone representing George Gershwin finishing the Rhapsody in Blue on a piano, at which point she launched into kind of having a, 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 a cocktail on, on, her, uh, on her penthouse. And the image of that, then there were five numbers that followed. All of this got cut before the opening night because people realized that the Kim that final moment w wasn't necessarily what the audience has been waiting for. And they have found ways to do the last chapter in the saga of this three-generation family in one song. That one song changes. I was very cleverly going to start by introducing you to the song that was added in London, because in the original production, Magnolia did takeoffs of stars of the time. They sang, uh, Why Do I Love You?, but they, she did it like W.C. Fields or people that you would no longer have any uh, knowledge of. Uh, in this case, we actually added the song that was added in London has never been done in America, and in fact, it is the song that is used currently. Uh, and is it, it, is it, where do you use it in the show? Um, it's the very last scene where you see Magnolia actually become a big Broadway star. So it's, you know, so it's it. become this huge, I mean, this amazing gown, this huge headpiece, two dancer boys, and it's just like in front of a, like a blank dancer boys and two a, like a, a blank blue curtain and it's just a very it's like usually in show but you just hear about her becoming a star but here you actually get to see where she's ended up and where she's become which I think I, is really nice to be able to I see it this. I, I love it so you're going to hear a piece of this that I put in because it was usually Kim's song in London and it's never been done in America and now it is uh, but hearing a piece of it it's great and it's great to know that it's found a home in this particular production Till the morning, 
actually be sharing pieces of seven numbers, and three of them all were written for the same spot in the show, which is Kim's one number where we get to introduce her. This next one, however, is what became the mo moment of You Are Love in the show. This was the first, Creole Love Song was the first attempt at it. Uh, I, I have to say, You Are Love is one of my favorite songs ever in music theater. I cannot wait to see the show if nothing else is to see that song again. And uh, uh, Jerome Kern didn't like it much. Uh, so he kept trying to replace it and they kept coming back to it. It had its own gravitational pull, which I'm very happy to say. But this was their original crack at that moment in the first act. When a Creole wants to woo a maid With a song he'll start If she be grateful for his love serenade She'll pay him with her heart Heartful way of spinning Her whose heart is spinning Easy victim It's the, the Creole song of love Forever true Let me sing it to you You hear me whisper a yearning sigh That means I'm wanting you And if you see a longing in my eye It's all from wanting you That sigh will go, that yearning eye will glow And once you let me know you love me too But if that joy should be Remembering 
who scorns to fear the cradle and his son. For though she may repel the bold cavalier, her lips will yield her long. Long as there's a chance of gaining such romance and adventure, Tis I will sing my song of love. I'm feeling too. Let me sing it too. I think when you go to the Lyric Opera and hear You Are Love, applaud extra uh, fiercely afterwards, <laughs> that that song is the song in the show. Uh, the next two songs are both uh, Kim's finale. The first, Why Do I Love You? Uh, her version of it, again, she, besides having uh, about a 10 minute dance number in the middle of it, she also really made uh, fun. She actually imitated the major performers on Broadway of the day. You don't have to do that. <laughs> Nobody Else But Me was a number that was added in several versions and is actually the one that is most used for Kim's uh, final number. I was a shy, demure type 
inhibited, insecure type of girl. A pearl of no great price was I, till a certain cutie called me sweetie pie. Now I'm smug and snooty, and my nose is high. For the, for the 1936 movie, a song was composed called I Have the Room Above Her. It finally made Broadway in 1994 in the How Prince revival. And it was actually sung by Evelyn's father, who got a Tony nomination, Mark Jacoby, for playing Ravenel in that production. love her how could she know I love her sitting in her room below sitting in her room below how could she dream how far a dream could go sometimes we meet she smiles and oh her smiles divine and stammer badly my heart is beating madly then she goes into her room and I go sadly up to mine 
A lover more impetuous than I Would say his say or know the reason why But when I get my chance I let my chance go by I have the room above her She doesn't know I love her How could she know I love her Sitting in her How far a dream could go Sometimes we meet his smiles And oh, his smile is divine It's such a treat to hear him say Hasn't the weather been fine? I blush and stammer badly Oscar Hammerstein II uh, directed the 1946 revival, uh, and it was actually a recreation. Almost every major Broadway production each decade had brand new orchestrations, brand new uh, songs uh, shaped. And he swore in the program in 1946 that Bill was uh, written by P.G. Woodhouse, a lyricist uh, from one of the Princess musicals. They had tried to put it in four different shows failed in all of them, and finally had this moment for Julie, and they thought it could fit. Uh, and he, in his usual self-effacing way, really said, no, it, was, it really is all P.G. Uh, Woodhouse. And in fact, uh, David Fiorello is going to talk us through what are proved to be differences from the original P.G. Woodhouse version and the one that actually uh, appeared on stage in the show. Good evening, everyone. Yes, good evening, everyone. Um, so we're all familiar with the, uh, the bill that is, that is mostly there, but if not, here's a little one-minute version just so we're all aware so we can notice the changes. I used to dream that I would discover the perfect lover someday. I knew I'd recognize him if ever he came round my way. Remember? I always used to fancy them. He'd be one of those godlike kind of men with a giant brain and a noble head and the heroes bold in the books I read. Now listen to this part, which we all know. But along came Bill, who's not the type at all. We'd meet him on the street and never notice him. His form and face, his manly grace, is not the kind that you would find in a statue. But I can't explain, it's surely not his brain that makes me thrill. 
I love him because he's, I don't know, because he's just my friend. We all remember that. Here's, here's what's kind of nice uh, as we find a new, the new one. A lot of similarities. I used to dream that I would discover the perfect lover someday. I knew I'd recognize him if ever he came round my way. Sounds familiar. I always used to fancy them. He'd be one of those godlike kind of men with a giant brain and a noble head. The heroes bold in the books I read. And now listen. But along came Bill, who's quite the opposite of all the men, different out there, in storybooks, in grace and looks. I know that Apollo would beat him all hollow, and I can't explain. It's surely not his brain that makes me thrill. I love him because he's wonderful, because he's just old Bill. Second verse is slightly different, but maybe something similar. He can't play golf or tennis or polo or sing a solo or row. He isn't half as handsome as dozens of men that I know. He isn't tall and straight and slim, and he dresses far worse than Ted or Jim. And I can't explain why he should be just the one one man in the world for me. He's just my bill. He has no gifts at all. A motor car he cannot steer. And it seems clear whenever he dances, his partner takes chances. Oh, I can't explain. It's surely not his brain that makes me thrill. I love him because he's, I don't know, because he's just my Bill. Some differences. And the very last number is Gallivantin' Around, and it actually has been in various versions. It was actually written for the film, uh, but it has been sung uh, both by Magnolia and by Kim in various productions. And even Julie in one. <laughs> Matilda Hill visited friends in Louisville, then came back home. Her man was waiting at her front door, jealous and sore, asking questions. Liza Matilda Hill, what did you do in Louisville? So far from home. She said, Hun, I had fun. Here's all that I done done. Gallivanting around, just gallivanting around. My feet been off of the ground, been gallivanting around, been dancing all night long. Getting home to bed, I don't know when. There ain't no telling all the times I fell in love and out again. Been gallivanting around, but now I reckon I'm through. For now. 
Thank you, guys. Uh, one of the great things about Showboat is it has the ability to morph. It changes, it grows, it is revised every decade. Uh, it is made contemporary, our contemporary in the audience every decade. And one of the things that I find really thrilling is I'm on a stage with people who are gonna be responsible for the next 10 years of Showboat being the legendary masterpiece because they will bring to it something unique and something so special and so unique to themselves that it will make the material transcend. Uh, I would love just to thank everyone for being here and is there anything you guys would like to say in closing? I hope you guys come to the show. Um, <laughs> I really do. I mean, it's so, we've had such a great time putting it together, and I really do feel that it, it's going to be a really special evening for all of us. And just to hear Mr. Morris down there sing Old Man River, it makes your feet vibrate, is all I'm saying. It is so good and juicy. So I really do hope you guys come and see the show. Thank you all very much. Please come and see the show. It is an American classic. Thank you. You've been listening to Backstage at Lyric, the podcast that takes you behind the curtain at Lyric Opera of Chicago. For additional interactive content and to order tickets, visit us online at lyricopera.org.